Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. It's my life, boys. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The events of Westminster last night brought us about as close to the collapse of the Theresa May government than ever we have been. And she's not out of the woods yet as we enter day two of the Prime Minister's rather ill-judged PR campaign to save the Brexit bill. She looks more and more like a busted flush past her sell-by date and in over her head. As a result of one of the amendments voted in Parliament last night by several former Cabinet members uh, of her own party, not only will she risk the entire Brexit deal if she loses the debate next Tuesday, but she could actually be unseated herself if MPs take control of the House. I told you at the start of this week that we would be keeping you abreast of all the twists and turns in Westminster, but even I didn't expect it to fall apart quite so spectacularly as it seems to have done. The Tory faithful are diminishing with every hour that passes, as is the likelihood of a no-deal Brexit. In fact, as I've been telling you all along, the chances of Brexit now not happening at all have increased substantially in the last 24 hours. We'll bring you the latest this morning as the government prepares to release the official version of the legal advice on Brexit that they tried to keep secret. And we'll ask Matt Kelly from the New European. What on earth happens now? 0344 499 1000. Coming up a little bit later on, we'll be asking whether rats and pigeons will be the only species that survive on the planet in years to come. And we'll find out what all the fuss is about uh, a cinema that charges 40 quid to see a movie. Has the world gone completely stark, staring, bonkers mad? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Talk about doom and gloom. Talk about the death of democracy. Talk about voting for something and not getting it. Well, uh, who would have thought that yesterday evening the, the Tory party would collapse in quite such a spectacular way? I'm delighted to say we're joined this morning by Matt Kelly, editor of The New European, a weekly newspaper uh, which has fought tooth and nail, and very successfully, by the way, uh, to remain in the European Union. I'm going to suggest to you, Matt, this morning that you should turn it into a daily paper because I think you're going to need to. <laughs> Hey? Oh my God. It's, it's hard enough getting it out weekly. But, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's incredible, isn't it? Cer- we could certainly do a daily paper, joking aside now. The, the pace of events yeah. now has become unprecedented. I've never, I'm 50 next year, I've never seen anything like it. And I'm speaking to my father, who's 84. He's never seen Mm. anything like it. It is absolutely historically epic. It really is. A lot of the pundits this morning harking back to the dark days of John Major's government, when that was all kind of unravelling. But but even that wasn't, it seems to me, quite as spectacular as this. Because you've got, on the one hand, you've got Theresa May staring kind of blindly into this tunnel uh, without seeing the train that's coming at her. Yeah, well, I think she does see the train, and my personal view is is that she's already writing her political obituary. You know, uh, I think 
that speech she made yesterday just sounded like a kind of valedictory. I've done my best yeah. now. You know, I know I've, I'm, I'm on the wrong side of history on this one, but uh, you're going to have to judge me on my goodwill. And my, my point of view all along has been that goodwill and hard work and resilience and all of this add up to nothing unless we get a, a great deal out of out of the sort of chaos that started two and a half years ago. Sure. I mean, we seem to be hearing more and more now as well. That, that I mean, I said this on the morning after the referendum. I don't really think this will happen. I can't see yeah. uh, there are too many members of the establishment who don't want it to happen, too many members of Parliament that don't want it to happen. And the idea that, that somehow Brexit and leaving the European Union was going to happen, to me, was always a bit of a myth. However, people did vote for it, Matt, and they deserve surely yeah. to get what they voted for. Well, I woke up on the morning afterwards and, and like you thought, this is never going to happen, but perhaps for different reasons, because I just couldn't see how it could happen. Mm. There were so many contradictions in it. And I think when history does look back and judge uh, Theresa May and her government, they will say how the biggest mistake of all was being so rash into ruling out membership of the customs union, the single market, the European Court of Justice, because all of those things, the minute she ruled those out, that created the problem with the Irish border, which has been the problem that has killed Brexit. Mm. Now, I say who was talking about the Irish border before the vote? How big was that in people's Well, I don't remember anybody talking about that. No. I keep hearing and now that people say, oh we, oh, we did bring it up. Well, I don't remember that. Yeah. No, so it's now become the central issue. And this is what cuts down to the, the sort of big abstract argument around Brexit, which is this idea of sovereignty and what does the United Kingdom mean? And my, my view, and I completely accept that there'll be millions of people who, who feel completely differently, but my view is that we shouldn't be dogmatic about these kind of abstract concepts. We should be pragmatic and understand that sharing sovereignty in some ways is a very positive thing to do and has brought us great benefits. And, and to hold sovereignty up as something that we've lost and, and we must reclaim, to me, that is the great myth, the great dog whistle that was put out there and made a lot of people feel that this was something about Great Britain and about our, our place in the world and... Actually, I think people are coming round to the realisation that we had a great place in the world. We still can have a great place in the world and we can influence centrally the biggest trading bloc in the, in the world and, and the European Union. And I don't like loads of stuff about the European Union. I hate the fact that there's this unelected hunter at the top and it feels like a carve-up. But we should go in and change it. Yeah, but we haven't changed it, Matt. And I mean, one of the things we also didn't hear about before the referendum uh, was anybody who was actually standing up and saying, isn't the European Union a fine institution? Isn't it a great place to be in? Isn't it wonderful that we can influence things? I had a guy on from Open Britain yesterday and I said, can you name one thing that we actually influenced inside the European Union? And he couldn't because we never did. Well, that's not true, Mike. We, we, I mean, all of the regulations that people like the, you know, the food regulations, the farming regulations, they were all driven by us. Uh, there's lots of um, uh, stuff that Britain has acted as a block, and this is the key thing, and this is what people must remember. Britain has acted as a break between the Franco-German alliance, right? Which has it? Which is well, now- how come Europe's run by the French and the Germans then? 
Well, I don't think it is. I really? Well, I think it will be from now on. It will be from now on. And if you think it's bad now, just wait until you see it. if, if we're well, not Well, I seem to remember it was down to Angela Merkel and the central bank in Germany uh, who decided it would be a great idea to go and try and invite and bribe um, Ukraine into the place, which caused a war in that part of the world, to, 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 yeah. to falsify documentation through Goldman Sachs to get Greece to join the European Union, even though they didn't actually uh, fit the criteria financially and then caused a huge problem there. You know, yeah. they've also have been responsible for bringing in loads of Eastern European countries, uh, which have yeah. ruined, to be quite honest, an awful lot of what was good about the EU. Well, so, OK, that's, that's a position, and that's fair enough to argue that, and I wouldn't disagree with some of it. But she also said we should have a common currency called the euro, and everyone must be in it. And Britain said, no, thank you. Yeah. We'll step to one side and demonstrated that sovereignty is something you can claim. And Britain unilaterally decided to go and bomb places that the European Union didn't want to do. Now, I think that was bad use of sovereignty, but it still demonstrates that... Well, as part of NATO, by the way, Matt, which is still a pretty important organisation, which we are a part of, and France is not. Well, I think the bombing of of, uh, Syria that we took place in wasn't part of NATO. It was a a unilateral with the United States at at first. But anyway, the point is... We can do things on our own, in our own way. We have influenced the European Union in the past. We should be at the table influencing them for two reasons. One is what we've got to gain, but also what we've got to lose if we're not there arguing our toss, because they will steamroller over us. And if that sounds unpatriotic, I'm sorry, my version of patriotism is to be realistic about who we are, what we can do, and how we can get the best out of out of our country. And I think it is as part of this this group of nations that has served us pretty well, actually, in the last 40 years. Don't you think, though, it's a little bit uh, dangerous and, and not to say patronising to those people who voted to leave the European Union to just completely ignore them? Because, I mean, as much as I say, I never thought it would I'm not happen. not ignoring them. I'm asking them to vote again. No, well, why, though? Why should they? It's not. No one's ignoring anybody. This, this idea that the second referendum is some kind of betrayal of democracy, that would be true if you were asking a different bunch of people. But you're asking the same people, Mike. And if the yeah, but why are you asking them mind, a question they've already answered? But if they've changed their minds after the two and a half years of absolute chaos and the truth that has emerged about the consequences of Brexit, and Mike, tell me this, if the argument on the 22nd of June 2016 had been, we will probably crash out with no deal, there will be probably an 8% hit to the economy immediately, we, Kent will be turned into a lorry park, we will have to stockpile food and medicines. That's all, all cobblers, though, Matt. That's not I, true. I, do you think, well, it is true. How is do it true? Think, it hasn't happened. But the government are preparing for it, Mike. Well, the government they, prepares for everything. The government's also preparing for nuclear war. Doesn't mean there's going to be one. Well, what's, okay, Mike. What version of Brexit do you think is is feasible right now? Because her deal is not getting. Well, do you know so what, Matt? I, I have given up answering those questions because I have well, no have idea. To. Right? I I don't well, know what's going to happen want... tomorrow. I don't even so, know. Mike, I don't even know what pub I'm going to end up in later on tonight. Right? So I don't Mike, speculate on what's going to happen in a year's time or in ten years' right. time, and neither does anybody else. So your position then is that we must see through a scenario that you don't even know what it is. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because the future is unknown, Matt. Guess what? No, no, guess what? The future is unknown. You have no idea whether when you walk out into the street later on today, you're going to get hit by a bus. That could happen. You can't can't guarantee that it won't happen. 
No, you're right. But I, what I can guarantee is if I stand in the middle of the road and shut my eyes, that will I will get hit by a bus. What I'm suggesting is is that we look both ways before we cross. Good idea, but try doing that on Blackfriars Road. You'll get hit by cyclists, I promise you. The point is, <laughs> there are some very dangerous things that can happen out there, right? There are some very yeah. nasty things that can happen. You cannot, yeah. you know, you're like one of these millennials okay. who wants to guarantee their life is going right. to be great no, no, and they're no, going to be able no, to no, buy no. a house right. and they're going to be able to make lots of money and they're going to be able to have holidays in the Maldives no. and they're going to ma- meet the perfect wife and have wonderful children. You know, life That's isn't right. like that. Just like your, well, it is for you, mate. Well, Come it is on. for me. That's true. Yeah, but yeah. I'm just very lucky. No, but listen, I, my, my, my point of view is this, is that if people have changed their mind, it's disrespectful not to allow them to take, to take a, another look at what is clearly, and this is something we can both agree on because it's exactly what we've both just been saying. This is a massive, massive gamble. Britain is putting a huge amount of its capital on a roulette table. And if people aren't comfortable with the gamble, I think it's utterly irresponsible of people to argue that I'm sorry, you committed to it two and a half years ago. You must see it through. And I get the arguments about why people feel absolutely angry. And by the way, I don't think there, unfortunately, I don't think there is anything other than a very traumatic conclusion to this. Whatever happens, people are going to be really, really angry. I think the people who are going to be angriest are those who voted for Brexit, who believed the dream they were sold, and then are going to feel really cut out, not because they didn't get another vote, but because they lost their jobs. I don't really know anyone that has changed their mind, though. I mean, you keep hearing from the Remainer side of the argument that loads of people have changed their minds. There isn't actually any evidence to suggest that. And, I mean, if, if in fact, you take the view that people change their minds all the time, then why bother even having elections? Just get put a government in and then just change it whenever you feel like it because you don't well, like what they're doing. Well, we do do that every five years. Yeah. And- and the problem with the referendum, and this, I think, is why everybody is so passionate about it. And by the way, one silver lining to this massive storm cloud is the, I think and I hope, is the renaissance of political uh, interest in this company, in this country. I think a lot of people are really engaged now. And it's the reason everyone's so passionate, you're passionate, I'm passionate, the reason is it's so final. You know, it's not something we can back out of. So... This, this uh, crucial, crucial gamble we're about to take, I think if, you, if there was a, a case for a second referendum that we were making absolutely sure that the people were behind this deal, then I can't think of a better example than, than this. Well, the people can't be behind the deal because nobody really knows what the deal is, and that is part of the problem. Well, the but, pe- but let me read you this tweet out. Let me read you this tweet out that I've yeah. got from Mickey. It says, I just can't see any option available for Brexit voters now. All this mess is going to push Brexit supporters, and quietly there are a hell of a lot of them, into voting for the far-right parties in protest at the way the political elites have betrayed them and ignored them. And I think that's a very important point. I think yeah. you should be very careful, Matt, about yeah. where we go from here, because if that is yeah. the case, if we do push everybody who voted for Brexit down the river and say, sorry, you didn't know what you were doing. Uh, We're going to have another vote. And in fact, we decide to stay in the European Union. I do have some fears about what that would then result in. Absolutely. And me too. And I think there are two two points to make on that. I think uh, it's imagine uh, everyone's assuming that the far right and the hard right are going to disappear once they get Brexit rubbish. They are going to feel empowered by Brexit. And I think that that will be a catalyst for, for the bad kind of nationalism that I find very, very disturbing. But also, I think you're absolutely right to say that this has just demonstrated how 
both main parties. But the Conservative Party in particular is absolutely broken beyond redemption. Mm. You know, so, so there is going to be, I think, a new movement of some sort. Farage uh, quit UKIP yesterday yeah. and will clearly re-emerge in, in, a, in a different suit of, of many colours. But it, something will happen and they will play on those same uh, emotions and many of those emotions are perfectly valid and i'm not sitting here saying that the four million people who voted for ukip were fools or didn't know what they were doing or didn't feel it i think people who who probably thought that much about it that they were going to vote for ukip probably did think about it oh but i think they did soft, yeah there's a soft middle though mike where people are wavering and i don't think we can have a country that is 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 directed by the extremes in politics you know, we've got Jeremy Corbyn on one side, wants a socialist revolution. Yeah. We've got Theresa May on the other side, wanting, frankly, God knows what. Well, I don't know where she stands, yeah. to be honest. But, I mean, we had yeah. for a long time a situation where people had Tony Blair and David Cameron, who basically yeah. had the same policies um, with different numbers on them, you know, with different colours. Yeah. Yeah. But it was all very central. So people complained about that. And this is the result. Yeah. We've now got sort of a bit more of a polarisation going on. I mean, I think we can both agree, Matt, that the worst idea anybody ever had uh, was David Cameron having the referendum idea. But totally. we are but where... You know, you know the... You know the story behind that, don't you? Is that he, he called the referendum because he was pretty sure he was going to end up with another hung parliament yeah. and that the Liberal well, Democrats would stop him. So that was another gamble. Yeah, right. That but it was, meant to, it was meant to unite the Tory party. I mean, it shows yeah. you how much he yeah. knew because, I mean, it couldn't be more disunited uh, than it is now. But, I mean, we are in a terrible place, Matt, and I honestly don't yeah. think we will recover from it for many, many decades to come. Whatever happens, whatever happens. Yeah. I mean, there is so much bile, nastiness, you know, abuse yeah. going on out there, just on, not just on social media, but we saw yesterday a load of people down at Parliament shouting abuse at yeah. Owen Jones. He's not my favourite person, but, you know, I mean, it was pretty yeah. horrific stuff. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. And there are, and there have always been nasty people there. This has brought them out yeah. to the surface, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, my hope is that they will be put back into the context uh, once once this is resolved. But I, I agree completely. I think it will take at least a decade, maybe two or three before Britain really feels comfortable again with itself and, and feels like we, ha we have a common sense of purpose as a, as a nation because I think we the last two and a half years has demonstrated very clearly that we are split down the middle about our idea of what Britain is and that, that has got to be worked through and it's going to be painful. No, indeed. Now, your paper's coming out tomorrow, I think, isn't it? Um, what have you yes, got in, is, uh, yeah. in store for us? What are you going to be predicting for next Tuesday? Because well, I'm not even sure what's going to happen next yeah. Tuesday now. No, well, it, I mean, if there's a vote, if there's a vote, um, I think uh, she will clearly lose the vote. I think then she will... I, I think one of two things. Either she will throw her hands up and walk away and say, I'm sorry, I've done my best. Or she will move to try to find some sort of consensus about moving towards a second referendum because I cannot see any other route forward or out of this other than to throw back to the, to the people. And Theresa May's number one priority in life is not seeing through Brexit. It is keeping Jeremy Corbyn out of 10 Downing Street. Mm. And she will, if she's still there, she will do anything, including backtracking, on her vow not to have a second referendum, as long as she thinks that throws the, uh, the possibility of Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street further down the road. And what if the second referendum happens and you lose yeah. it again? What then? Well, then we stand by it. 
we stand by. Listen, I can't come on your show and, and write newspaper leaders and write articles for GQ saying that, you know, we can we are now in a position to take an informed vote and then say, oh, I still don't like that. Yeah. I mean, if people voted, if people voted to leave the European Union after all of this, and personally, I can't see it, but if they did, then... I would, you know, we'd have to change the new European to the new Brexiteer. <laughs> well, then, finally, you might give me a column. Finally, you might give me a column, then. papers would sell. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be brilliant. Listen, Matt, good luck with it all, as ever. And uh, I would prepare, if I were you, for a special extra edition to be done, minimum one next week, maybe Tuesday for Wednesday. Right. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Matt Kelly, uh, editor of the New European, fantastic character, brilliant journalist, uh, doesn't agree with me on very much at all. Uh, but nevertheless, we can argue in a way which is sensible in a way which is rational and in a way uh, which is polite and i just wish everybody could do the same thing the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio let's talk to harry who's in portsmouth hello harry oh yeah hello uh, matt you were talking to matt kelly he, i was he raised, he raised two or three points i did buy his paper a couple of times okay the new it reminded me of the beezer my old beezer comic <laughs> i'm sure he'll be it, delighted to hear that Hey, lovely colour in it, lovely cartoons. Yes. It, it, just like the Beezer. Right, okay. Anyway, um, he's mentioned a few things. Mm. He, he's gone on about his sovereign, sovereignty. Uh, Clark and the Hesseltine had the same subject in, in Maastricht. All this word about sovereignty is a carbon copy of then. Now, my belief is sovereign, sovereignty is not in a building in Westminster. It's in the soil. Mm. It's in the boundaries of the United Kingdom. Right. They do not own sovereignty. They've already devolved sovereignty to principalities in Scotland. And if Scotland has another referendum, they'll let them disappear over, over the horizon. So the parliamentarians do not hold sovereignty because they're ready to give it away at the drop of a hat. No, indeed. And I mean, I think you're not, I don't think you're right about Scotland. I think if they had another referendum in Scotland tomorrow, uh, they would vote to remain inside the United Kingdom. That's the, that's the sense I get. But what do you think would happen if there was a second referendum, Harry? Because it may well be that we get pushed in that direction. Yeah, that, they're, they're trying to corkscrew us that, that way. It's been yeah. going on for some time. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling Leave will win again because even more people will turn out. And we're, we're going to... We, we already suspect, suspect the propaganda campaign that's been going on from from the Remain. Julie Hartley Brewer mentioned mm. the grid yes. this morning. Right. We, 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 we all suspect it. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, Harry. Thanks very much indeed. Phil says this on Twitter. Uh, you can tweet us at Talk Radio or at IROMG. Made the mule is so stubborn. She and her shocking cabinet are risking sending the Tory party to the political wilderness. Yes, she wants to keep Corbyn away from number 10. So do I. But her poorly executed strategy is backfiring. Yet she seems oblivious to this fact. Well, that is the problem, isn't it? She doesn't seem to be aware of the fact that there is a massive train coming right at her from the light at the end of the tunnel. Let's talk to Paddy in Suffolk. Hi, Paddy. Hi, Mike. How are you? Very well, thank Excellent. you. Uh, like you, you like when I hear of this people's vote, I feel, feel like reaching for the sick bucket. Yes, indeed. Um, it's, it's Europe that's sick at the moment. Mm. Look at France. I know. Uh, look at uh, Italy. Yes. Look at Greece, the yeah. broke. Well, look at Spain. They can't even and hold yes. it together. The problem is people don't realise when they're winning. They've got a tendency to capitulate yes. when they don't need to. Well, also, Paddy, I keep asking, and I'll ask you this question as well. 
what is it that we were able to influence inside the European Union? You know, what was our great role that we played over the last 45 years? What did we do? It was our demise. Mm, yes. When we, we, when we entered the uh, common market, as it was called then, we had a marvellous, you know, portfolio of industries, really mm. important industries that are still going in other countries today. But for some reason, we don't have them anymore. No, right. That's um, the problem, isn't it? And and there is nothing really in what I'm looking at in Westminster that is in any in any way appetising to me. There is no a sort of individual emerging from the from the darkness who looks like they know what they're doing. Well, I was worried from the get go about Theresa May because if we cast our mind back to when it was her job yeah. to get rid of the hook, mm. and it took her years. Yes, it was complete cock up. Yes, indeed. What to finish? Yes. No wonder she's cocked this up. Well, the funny thing is, right, when she became Prime Minister, nobody was very keen. Then she suddenly decided to weaken her own position by having another election, in which she then went into bed with the DUP, who bizarrely uh, have now got a massive say over the, the border situation in Northern Ireland. She now uh, gets applauded for being resilient, but we forget how useless she was at the beginning. Yes, she's everything she's tried, she, well, she's... She's just been totally inept and incompetent at it. But the border between in Northern Ireland, it, it, there, there really is a border there with VAT and tax yeah. and the likes. Right. What, what's what's going to change? You well, know? exactly. I, I can't figure it out for the life of me, Paddy. But thank you, as ever, uh, for your call. Paddy there in Suffolk, uh, making a great deal of sense. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We're going to keep making sense. We're going to keep trying to figure out what on earth is going to happen next in Westminster. There are loads and loads of pundits out there. There are many, many people writing in lots and lots of newspapers. But this is the only place where you'll find out what's really going on. Ross Kempsell will be joining us a little bit later on in the show uh, to tell us what is in this document, the secret document that the government did not want you to see, uh, did not want to release, but has now been forced to release after the vote in Parliament yesterday, which made it uh, a basically contempt of Parliament that the government was guilty of. The first time in history, I think, that that's ever happened. People are talking about the dark days of John Major's regime uh, and how Theresa May is literally teetering uh, on the edge of the volcano. Uh, will she survive next Tuesday's vote? Will she survive until Christmas? Will she even survive until March the 29th when Brexit is meant to happen? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Well, let's talk to Claire Bailey now, Independent retail expert because when I saw a story uh, yesterday in which it said that people were actually paying £40 per ticket to go to the movies at a place in Leicester Square in London, I couldn't believe it. I thought this must be some kind of April Fool, mustn't it? But it turns out to be entirely correct. Claire, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining me. Now, when I see people buying televisions that yes. cost sort of £7,000 and, you know, sound bars that cost £2,000 and, you know, headphones that cost £500, I think to myself, surely we've now reached a point in society where we've got more money than sense. But 40 quid for a cinema ticket, I think, beats all of that. Well, if you think about it, um, you might pay 10 or 15 in a less uh, salubrious area yeah. to go to watch the same movie. But the property that we're talking about in Leicester Square probably has some of the highest rent and rates and overhead going. Right. So I imagine they probably only make the same amount of profit on a ticket at £40 as perhaps my local Odeon in Lincoln yeah. do for £10 a ticket. Well, that might because be true. Because property values could be 10 times as much. 
I mean, okay, maybe consumers need to step back and say, is it really worth it? Can I not wait for it to come out on DVD? <laughs> but if you're a tourist in London and you want to tell everybody, what did you do in London? Well, I went here, I went there, I went to see a film in Leicester Square, you know, the place where all the premieres yeah. are. And it's a talking point. So people willing to spend that on a day out, a theme park, maybe a theatre ticket. So... Yes, it sounds a lot of money, but when you look at the costs of running those businesses, that's what they have to charge to operate in those locations, to staff them, clean them, insure them, and present mm. the, the customer experience that we expect to have. So I think there's sort of two sides, as there always is. Well, yeah, but with the best will in the world, Claire, it's none of my business how much it costs to run a business. I don't care that they pay high rent. I don't really uh, give a monkeys that they're in Leicester Square. They should have to build that in. I'm just I'm worried slightly that we are now encouraging people to spend <laughs> more and more money on things which are costing more and more for no really good reason. I mean, I'm sorry that well, they... What you just said is, is true, but they have built it in. That's why they have to charge £40 for a ticket. And yeah, OK, it's got to come down to common sense to the consumer. Yeah. Does that does that experience warrant spending for let's say a couple of going out for a night out probably over a hundred quid once you've factored in the price of a bucket of popcorn and a can of coke? Well, exactly. I mean, I mean God knows how much the popcorn is. The popcorn is probably about twenty quid. You know. <laughs> but, but the thing is, if you can't afford it, then you shouldn't be doing it. And I think that's what we have to recognise that people are acting almost irresponsibly. They're overspending, particularly at this time of year. Taking out uh, excessive loans and very high interest credit cards in order to fund a lifestyle that they can't actually pay for on a daily basis. And I think that's where we need to get a bit real, especially at this time of year, and think if I haven't got the money to buy the kids, let's say, the latest VR headset or a game for a PlayStation or Xbox or whatever the console is, then they don't get it. And maybe the whole family puts something towards it and the child gets one present that they choose to buy. And I think we need to go back to those old-fashioned values of only spending what you can afford. And this just is an example of that. If you can't afford £40 for the cinema, then stay at home. Well, exactly. And I mean, I'm sorry to be a bit of a downer on, on what is your business, which is retail sales. But basically, I mean, you know, people are not intelligent enough, it seems to me, to seem to know <laughs> what it is that they want. You know, we've given them so much choice now. I mean, if you walk yeah. into any kind of electrical store and you're bombarded with this kind of stuff that nobody needs, you know, coffee machines everywhere for 200 quid, yeah. 300 quid. I mean, how many espressos are you going to drink, for heaven's sake? I think the thing is, though, retail is all about responding to the customer's needs and what the customers are asking for and market research and trends and patterns of buying behavior. So if retailers have put those products on display, think about it, that product is occupying a piece of space in a shop that costs money to pay the rent and rates for. So if they're not going to sell that product because consumers don't want to buy it, then they'll put another product in that bit of space that people do want to buy. So in a way the retailers are following what consumers are asking for. And if they're putting those products on display, then people are obviously willing to buy them. So it's kind Don't of... Don't you think it's a bit egg. of a... I was going to say, exactly that, chicken yeah. and egg, because actually yeah. they're kind of creating the demand, then responding to it in a way, because... Yeah, I, mean, if I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I need an espresso machine, but if I keep seeing them, I might finally find myself buying one. You know. <laughs> exactly. And who needs to have <laughs> the latest television, the latest? But there is a certain keeping up of the Joneses. And I think that's a lot more to do with the way society is behaving yes. than necessarily retail. Because retail, they, they're one of the largest employing uh, sectors in the country. And they, they actually are probably paying the wages to the people who are spending the money in their shops. Yeah. It's sort of circular. But 
they are there to respond to consumer demand. Mm. And the ones that fail are the ones that don't respond to consumer demand. The ones that are successful are ever inventing new ways of engaging with customers and making customers enjoy the shopping experience. So with that in mind, you've got to sort of think, well, if customers don't enjoy buying these gadgets and gizmos and, and spending money on things to sort of titillate their home with, then the retailers will have to change what they sell. So we can stop this tide of overspending by voting with our feet in our wallets and stop spending. But actually, that would just harm the retailers. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a yin and yang, and it needs to be balanced carefully. But obviously... The most important thing is people need to be sensible at this time of year because the last thing we need is to see a lot of people in trouble in January Mm. because they've overspent at Christmas. No, absolutely right. And I mean, Black Friday and Cyber Monday comes now before we even think about Christmas. And what about, are you saying basically that people like House of Fraser and some of the other stores like Mothercare, Toys R Us, you think that they were the victims of not actually selling what people wanted, do you think? And in a way people wanted and not being sort of innovative and fresh and offering that convenience, the whole picture of a mixture of the digital and the physical experience, exciting, innovative new products. They didn't present the products in the right way. They didn't necessarily have uh, well-informed staff who could guide the customer to the correct purchase. And the whole shopping environment. I mean, BHS is another good example. You walk into a BHS and it looks exactly the same as it had been in the 90s. And, of course, that was 25 years out of date. Mm. No, indeed. And what about places like Apple? Because, I mean, they're incredibly, um, uh, have incredibly sort of loyal uh, customers, but they've created, if you like, this ability for people to to want to queue up overnight for a new iPhone. Mm. And it's all about wanting something before somebody else has it, isn't it? Because I'm assuming that people will want to go to this cinema uh, and pay 40 quid so they can tell everybody they've been there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit like going to a theme park. You can either spend two hours in a queue or spend an extra 20 quid to jump the queue. Yeah. And so it's how important is it to you to be able to say, I went on that ride, I got on the latest, I got the latest iPhone, I got the best telly. It, it's all down to this, um, it was almost keeping up with the Joneses effect that society's created. And I, I just keep coming back to the same point of if you can afford it and if it's what makes you happy... It's part of human nature to enjoy themselves and, and you know, want to mm. be competitive and have the next best thing. But if you can't afford it and it's going to make you miserable after you've spent the money and you're going to regret it, then don't do it. Well, it's like the other thing that really drives me crazy nowadays, and that is that you can't now buy a seat on an aeroplane uh, without having to buy the, the seat again once you've actually booked the yeah. ticket, you know? And, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, Ryanair or, or EasyJet. I'm talking about, like, British Airways, like proper, yeah. you know, fully funded airlines where you now can't... I mean, I actually flew back from New York uh, just a few months ago, and the only seat that I could check in with, which wasn't extra money, was there was only one of them, you know? So I didn't actually yeah. have a choice of where to sit. I could only sit in one seat, which was in the middle of a row of three, um, and it turned out, luckily, that the one next to me in the end wasn't occupied. But if I'd wanted to, to occupy that one, I'd had to give them an extra 65 quid. It's a scandal. Well, back in the day, you couldn't do any of that. No. You didn't actually have the online facility. You'd have to arrive earlier than everyone else at the airport, be first in the queue at check-in, yeah. and they may or may not offer you a choice, but you were given what you got, and that was what we accepted. Mm. Then, of course, digital systems came out that allowed people to book ahead, and it's changed consumer expectations. Yes. So there is an element of when somebody comes out with something innovative, like, for example, I think, oh, I can't remember which retailer it was. I think it was possibly Next. 
came out with next day delivery before everyone else. Yeah. Then suddenly everyone else said, all right, well, if they can do it, why can't you? Sure. And each time there's an innovation, it pushes the customer expectation further. And, I mean, I saw a brilliant comedian uh, on TV the other night talking about the fact that there's the priority queue and there's the other queue. Right. And they put out the who's in the priority queue. And it was everybody. <laughs> right. Because everybody wants to go in the priority queue. So they created a situation where you can't take a bag on an airplane unless you pay for priority. So everyone pays for priority. Yeah. So they've now got to have a superior priority. Well, I'm, I'm, I, you know what I find that with is now with those airline lounges, you know, airport lounges, yes. because I get a card now with one of my credit cards, which gives me access to airline lounges. But they've clearly given one to everybody. So whenever exactly. I turn up at the airline lounge, I can't get in because it's too busy. And, and again, same with the theme parks. They've sold so many annual passes at yeah. such low prices. It's made it so accessible to people. But, of course, when you get there, the queues are so horrendous, you end up spending twice as much <laughs> on these queue jumper tickets. Yeah. So I think, I think we have created a situation where people thought they were getting something special. Yeah. The VIP lounge, the priority boarding, the mem- annual passes and so right. on. But then, obviously, that creates a problem where everybody upgrades and then you need to have another higher upgrade so that you can give a special experience for those who are willing to pay for it. Yes. No, it's true. I mean, I saw a tweet from somebody who was celebrating the parsimonious nature of being Scottish, and it was on a recent flight from, like, Gatwick up to Edinburgh or something, and nobody had signed up for speedy boarding. So, in fact, everybody got it for nothing. So yeah. there was no need to buy it. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's that kind of thing. But where does it all end, though, Claire? It was the converse where everybody had upgraded. Well, the thing is, whilst we live in such a consumerist society, I think that it is the nature of us as human species to always want to have something a little bit better. Yeah. You know, we want to be first in line. We want, it, it's the, maybe the thrill of the chase, the thrill of the win. And as long as that is our nature, then businesses are going to take advantage of that, maybe, or just benefit from it. But then again, at the end of the day, these businesses do employ us. No, and if it, we want to change things, it's down to us as human beings to mm, change things. No, indeed. So so what's the most ridiculously expensive thing you've bought recently, Claire? Have you fallen into the trap? <laughs> I'm probably the most tight-fisted person you'll ever meet. <laughs> oh, really? Um, but possibly the most, um, uh, the, the best deal I ever got was a last year Black Friday deal. You were talking about large TVs and soundbars. Yeah. Mine was nothing like the price you made. But I did look at the discount rather than the amount I was right. spending and then sort of gave myself a quick talking to and said, no, remember your own advice. It's not about the amount you're saving. It's the amount you're spending. Can right. you really afford it? Yes, exactly. I decided I could and I treated myself. Oh, okay. Because, so it I mean, wasn't that... necessarily ridiculous, but I was seduced by the £1,000 off. Yes. But that's what, we, that's what we're told now, that you know some of these deals are nowhere like as good as you think they are, but you think they are good because they say they are. And they say, oh, yeah, of well, course, it's this issue to cost £1,000 more. It does come down to research. If you check around, and obviously there was that report that came out by Witch that said the Black Friday deals could be cheaper at other times of the year. And I thought, well, come on, let's get real. If you want to buy a heavy winter coat mm. in November on a Black Friday deal and you get to get 20% off, you're quite lucky because normally you wouldn't discount a winter coat in winter. Right. If you want to buy that winter coat in March because the retailer needs to get rid of it to make way for summer clothes, you probably get 50% off. Right. But then you don't need it in March. No. So unless you're planning unless ahead... Unless you live in Scotland. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> unless you're planning ahead for next winter, yeah. then, you, you know, it, it's a valid point that you might get those deals cheaper at other times of year. But for what reason... And if it's because it's no longer a valid seasonal product or it's currently the state of art TV from XYZ brand, 
But in six months, a new, more state-of-the-art version comes out. The older one will be discounted heavily to get rid of that stock, yeah. making way for the new. But if you wanted it now and you were happy with the price you were paying, then it is a fair discount. So I think that report was a little bit unfair. Um, retailers are quite well governed in terms of how they can present discounts and promotions to avoid misleading consumers. No, indeed. It's a fascinating area, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again soon. We'll have a wonderful uh, Christmas, Claire, if we don't speak to you before that. Claire Bailey, independent retail expert. But really, seriously, 40 quid to go and see a movie. That means if you're taking a family of four along with you, well, or the other three people in that family of four, uh, you're talking about spending upwards of, what, probably, I don't know, 60, 70 quid? Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. No film is worth that. No cinema, surely, is worth that. 0344 1000. I mean, how shallow do you want to be? This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, right now, though, let's talk to Joe Hemmings, a psychologist and dating coach, because um, apparently women with long index fingers are to be very much avoided. Uh, Joe, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Now, listen, I've seen these stories before. I've seen stories <laughs> about men uh, with long index fingers being more you know, prone to something or other. I can't remember what it was. This is all rubbish, isn't it? Well, let's put it this way. If you go back a couple of years, I think 2015 in the Daily Mail, uh, there was an article saying that women with uh, longer ring fingers are more likely to cheat. Okay, so So, so this is completely different. (laughs) It's completely different. And, you know, what we do know is there's something called the 2D-4D ratio, which is the ratio between the length of your index finger versus your ring finger. Right. And that's about how much um, testosterone you're exposed to, mm. basically, in the womb. Right. Um, so there is something in it, but uh, what it doesn't take into account is, you know, our environment, our experiences, life experience, you know, what happens after we come out of the womb. Um, so, you know, there are as many theories on this, uh, and completely reverse, as I've just said, mm. um, Every so often it just comes up again and somebody makes this massive, sweeping, generic statement, <laughs> from, which has no scientific relevance. No, it. indeed. But from what you're saying, though, if, if you do, are you saying if you have more testosterone uh, in your body as a woman that you are more likely to cheat, though? That's basically what they're saying, but right. that's not necessarily uh, true. You, you know, it's been said you would have more dominant or aggressive behaviour, but but people who, um, it, it doesn't always work for people. I and mean, there's a hundred different psychological traits, uh, supposedly to do with the length of our fingers. Anything from uh, schizophrenia, allergies, eczema, uh, prostate cancer, uh, breast cancer. I mean, it goes on and on. And someone is always doing a study. And the truth is, it's. You know, there is only one fact there, mm. that there is slightly more testosterone in, in, in the womb, but it, it doesn't take into account anything else afterwards. So, of course, you're going to study these 250 people, which isn't very significant in itself. No. Um, and then you're going to find that, lo and behold, you're getting completely different results uh, pretty much each time you do it. So, so now it's... I'm going to ask you the most important question of the day. How do you tell uh, if your girlfriend is going to cheat on you? <laughs> Not by the length of her fingers. Possibly <laughs> by what comes out of her mouth. Yeah. Um, or the amount she's using her phone or so her behaviour is changing. That's how you might be able to tell if your girlfriend's a cheat. But yeah. I certainly wouldn't suggest. And the other thing is, with fingers, you can't... We've got all these diagrams in this feature saying, mm. yeah, have a look at them. 
I mean, in 99% of cases, you'd have to look at it under a very detailed scanner. Yes. Because it's to do with the creases at the bottom and the ratio and all sorts of things. It's not just the length of the fingers. So, mm. you know, again, just doing a bit of palmistry on yourself or on your yeah. girlfriend is not going to give you any... Uh... Well, she's going to get a bit suspicious if you start kind of reading her palm, isn't she, out of nowhere. And what about... Uh, I mean, I, I've always thought that the idea of them putting the phone down face down is always a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, the phone face down, on silent, going into another room to use it. Phone yeah. usage is, I would say, a far clearer or mm. a change in phone usage is a far clearer indication there might be something coming home uh, a bit later from work on. that kind of thing yes rather than her finger because if you look at uh, all the studies you'll find that you know one says one thing and one says something completely yeah. different so we have to conclude that actually <laughs> there's no significance to any of them is there any significant sort of increase in in unfaithfulness from women more than men these days or does it, is it about the same as it's always been studies are sort of pretty much levelled out now, but there was over the past uh, five, six, seven years, yeah, an increase in women being unfaithful, but that's often been associated with availability yeah. and that usually means dating apps. Right. Um, so yeah, there has, but I think it's sort of pretty much levelled out now. Okay. Very good. Well, Joe, thank you very much indeed. As ever, Joe Hemmings there, psychologist and dating coach, telling us um, about the uselessness, really, of this particular study. Women with long index fingers are more likely to cheat. Yeah, untrue, uh, because there was one just last year in which it said uh, that women with longer ring fingers were more likely to cheat. Maybe they're just more likely to cheat, period. It doesn't matter what size hands they've got. We shall see. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.